Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 2 entitled Lawyers in the Law and the Writings of Sir William Parsons. The paper was given by Dr John Cunningham of Trinity College Dublin and the University of Exeter. I will begin by discussing, uh, by focusing on Parsons the man and on his career before moving on to discuss his writings and the place of lawyers and the law within them. In the context of 17th century Ireland, Sir William Parsons requires little introduction. He belonged to that group of mostly English-born Protestants who dominated the Irish administration between the late 16th century and 1641. These men, the so-called New English, saw themselves as engaged in a providential mission to civilise and to anglicise Ireland. In the 1590s, Parsons established himself as assistant to his uncle, Sir Geoffrey Fenton, Surveyor General of Ireland, and he succeeded his uncle in that office in 1602. Thereafter, he became closely involved with the implementation of plantation policy in Ulster and elsewhere, amassing a considerable estate for himself in the process. Thomas Cart described Parsons as, quote, plodding, assiduous and indefatigable, greedy of gain and eager to raise a fortune, which it is not difficult for a man of indifferent parts to do when he is not hampered with scruples about the ways of getting it, unquote. <laughs> Cart is uh, clearly hostile to Parsons. By 1620, he had won the Duke of Buckingham's favour, securing as a result a knighthood, a seat on the Irish Privy Council, and appointment as Master of the Court of Wards. He was also involved in the work of the Commission for Defective Titles. This body generated considerable resentment by voiding many existing patents for land and forcing proprietors to avail of new titles at higher rents. While Parsons filled a variety of legal roles, there is no evidence of his having undertaken any legal training. According again to Thomas Cart, Parsons was, quote, a person of mean extract, bred up to read and write, which faculty was all his learning, unquote. Uh, In the turmoil around the Earl of Strafford's fall from power in 1640, Parsons was promoted to lead the Irish government as one of two Lords Justice alongside the elderly and frail Sir John Burleigh's. Disappointment meant that Parsons would be the chief influence on the Irish government's response to news of of rebellion in Ulster in October 1641. Contemporary judgments of his performance in this role were deeply divided. Sir John Temple portrayed Parsons as acting in a measured and diligent fashion as he sought to secure assistance from England, organise the defence of Dublin and liaise with Catholic landowners in adjacent counties to prevent the spread of violence from the north. In contrast, a remonstrance drawn up by the Confederate Catholics in March 1643 depicted the policies pursued by Parsons as having been instrumental firstly in causing the outbreak of the rebellion in Ulster and secondly in goading Catholics elsewhere into the rebel camp. Aidan Clark has suggested that there was some truth behind both perspectives. Parsons did make some effort to secure support from the old English Catholics in the Dublin region in the early stages of the rebellion. 
Once assured of military support from England, however, he clearly relished the prospect of confiscating as much Catholic land as, pos- as possible, and as, as, as he mentioned in a letter to London, settling here very great multitudes of the English in new plantations. The outbreak of civil war in England, however, fundamentally altered the political and military context. By the autumn of 1642, Irish Catholics had organised a system of government of their own, headquartered at Kilkenny. The King's growing desire to agree a truce with these Confederate Catholics was soon to cause major problems among the Dublin government. One of the major obstacles to compromise was the Protestant understanding of 1641 as a countrywide Catholic conspiracy to massacre all Protestants and to eradicate all traces of their existence from the Irish landscape. This perception was reinforced by the content of witness testimonies collected from Protestant refugees, which recounted widespread atrocities and all manner of terrible suffering at the hands of Catholics. This blood-soaked narrative was widely disseminated in pamphlet literature, and it, along with the radical confiscation policy enshrined in the Adventurers Act of 1642, appeared to cut away the grounds for ready compromise uh, with the Confederate Catholics. When the King nonetheless moved to open negotiations in the spring of 1643, this was a source of great alarm for many Irish Protestants. Parsons' sympathy for the cause of the English Parliament and his opposition to negotiations between the Royalists led by the Earl of Ormond and the Confederate Catholics made Parsons' position at the head of the Irish government untenable. At the end of March 1643, he was dismissed from the office of Lord Justice. In July, the King ordered his removal from the Irish Privy Council and shortly thereafter, his arrest. From that point until his relocation to London late in 1646, Parsons enjoyed a relatively low profile. One contemporary noted that, quote, he retired with much ease to his own privacies, with which he was much satisfied. Once in London, Parsons was active in the group labelled labelled by Patrick Little as the Irish Independents. He secured appointment to the Privy Council of Lord Lyle, who was briefly the Parliament's Lord Lieutenant for Ireland in 1646-47. He also became involved in raising money for use in Ireland. Just when the rapid progress of Oliver Cromwell's campaign appeared to be creating an opening for Parsons' return to Ireland, death intervened. He died in Westminster in March 1650, aged about 80 years. Now, to get on to his his writings, various letters and papers penned by Sir William Parsons survive in the state papers and elsewhere. Among the better known is his submission to the commission that investigated the Irish administration in 1622. This paper, entitled Reasons for the Plantations in Ireland, offered a robust defence of plantation policy and a plea for its continuance. Victor Treadwell has described it as the classic New English statement of early Stuart plantation policy. The work that I want to focus on today, however, dates from the mid-1640s and has been almost entirely overlooked. In May 1649, with preparations in full swing for Cromwell's expedition, Parsons approached the English Council of State with a proposal to publish one or more tracts. It considered his proposal on the 9th of May, and the relevant passage from the State Papers is worth quoting. The Lord President of the Council of State, having informed the Council that Sir William Parsons has prepared some discourses asserting the English interest in Ireland and discovering the ingratitude and unworthy dealings of the Irish and their adherents in partaking in that horrid rebellion there, particularly one tract called Examen Hibernische and another discourse containing questions and objections concerning the war in Ireland, the Council ordered Sir William Parsons to review his tracts and discourses and caused them to be printed and published. Now, as a postgraduate student in Galway some years ago, my efforts to track down a pamphlet entitled Examen Hibernitia proved unsuccessful. There is no trace of any such print publication. 
Eamon Darcy, however, in his recent monograph, drew attention to a surviving manuscript tract entitled Examen Hibernier, so the second word is ending with A-E rather than C-E. Um, on the basis of the 1649 reference in the State Papers, Darcy made the link to Parsons. And I should mention that I'm grateful to Eamon for discussing the manuscript with me and for encouraging me to look at it more closely. So two manuscript copies of Examen Hibernia have survived. Manuscript 692 in the National Library of Ireland belonged in 1727 to Edward Umfrivel, an, an avid English collector of legal manuscripts. It was purchased by the Duke of Newcastle in 1758 and found its way to the National Library in the late 1930s after the sale of the library at Clumber House. The other copy, which bears no contemporary title, was once part of the enormous library of the Duke of Chandos. It was purchased by Jeremiah Mills in 1747 and later given by him to the British Museum in 1766. And I think that second copy may have belonged to the Earl of Clarendon before it belonged to Chandos, but I, I can't quite prove that. Now, neither, copy, neither copy of this tract and manuscript bears the name of Sir William Parsons. The National Library of Ireland copy is entirely anonymous, although a scribbled note by Umfraville attributed it to Parsons' colleague, Sir John Temple, on the basis of the internal evidence. The first page of the British Library copy bears the name Mr. Pierpont. On this basis, some, of, some scholars have attributed it to William Pierpont, an MP from Nottinghamshire who played a prominent role in English parliamentary politics in the 1640s. The Council of State's reference to Parsons' tract in May 1649 and my analysis of the actual contents of the manuscripts alongside other things that Parsons wrote leaves me with no reason to doubt Parsons' authorship of Examen Hibernia. It is possible that the British Library copy may have belonged to William Pierpoint and that he was part of a group among whom Parsons chose to circulate his work in London. The background context for Parsons' uh, writing was provided by his fall from power in Dublin in 1643. The other councillors that were displaced at the same time included Sir John Temple and Sir Robert Meredith. Temple would put pen to paper to produce his well-known History of the Irish Rebellion, published in 1646, while Ormond's Curtain Drawn, a pamphlet written by Meredith's son Adam, was also published in that year. There's a little bit of controversy about who wrote the, the latter one, but uh, Meredith's uh, son is, is one of the candidates. The authors of these works placed their hopes in the English Parliament and were firmly opposed to any cessation with or concessions to the Confederate Catholics. The cessation agreed by Ormond with the Confederates in 1643 was a particular bone of contention. At the commencement of the negotiations, the Catholics had produced a remonstrance. This document justified rebellion for, for the sake of God, King and Country and set out the Catholics' grievances in 14 articles. Parsons was named five times in this document. In this way, he was firmly cast in the familiar role of the, the king's evil counsellor. He was firmly criticised by the Catholics for his response to the rebellion in Ulster and for his earlier actions on the Commission for Defective Titles. The remonstrance of the Catholics formed the basis of negotiations at Oxford in 1644 between the King and teams of agents sent over by both Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants. The Protestant team, which included Parsons' nephew, Captain William Parsons, pre presented a lengthy rebuttal of the remonstrance. It is not too surprising, then, that the senior William Parsons also decided to draw up a response to the Catholics' many complaints. While examine Hibernia cannot be dated exactly... I think it's probable that Parsons wrote it in Dublin um, between 1644 and 1646. He was under house arrest for at least uh, some of that time. So the, the tract that I'm referring to by Parsons is substantial, about 33,000 words in length. It can be understood as a response to the remonstrance in particular. 
In addition, Parsons also seems to have been aware of the more radical Catholic arguments that questioned the very basis of English rule in Ireland and denied the legitimacy of the Anglo-Norman conquest. The only author in this category that he mentioned by name was Philip O'Sullivan Bear, whom he credited with the argument that, quote, the new English ought, who he credited with the argument that the new English ought to be set upon no less than Turks, and that it was a doctrine fetched from hell that Catholics should join with the Protestants. Other writers and authorities mentioned by Parsons included Geraldus Cambrensis, Archbishop James Usher, and Sir Edward Coke. Or Cook. So Parsons' tract contained six main sections, which would have been on a slide if there was a slide. Um, the first and most substantial section was concerned with vindicating England's right to rule Ireland and with countering Catholic arguments against the prominent role and extensive influence enjoyed by the new English in Ireland. Two further sections answered the Confederates' claims that they had taken up arms in defence of their religion on the one hand and the King's prerogative on the other. Parsons also sought to contradict the Catholics' arguments that Ireland had since the 16th century been governed unjustly, uh, with Catholics experiencing discrimination and exclusion from places of honour and trust. Lastly, he sought to refute the accusation that the government had reacted inappropriately to the rebellion in Ulster and that an attack by its forces on Clontarf on 15 December 1641 had been decisive in forcing the Catholics of the Pale into the rebellion. That attack on Clontarf was was one of the deeds of Sir Charles Coote, who was mentioned quite a bit this morning in, in the context of martial law proceedings. The work that much of Parsons' track perhaps most closely resembles is Sir John Davies' Discovery of the True Causes, Why Ireland Was Never Entirely Subdued, first published in 1612. Those of you familiar with Davies' work will be familiar with its its dual structure. It deals first of all with military shortcomings uh, before working through the reign of successive monarchs a second time to highlight the many defects of English civil government in Ireland. In dealing with the period from the Anglo-Norman conquest to the end of the 16th century, Parsons seems to have followed roughly the outline of Davies' history. But the most striking similarity, aside from chronology and the same prominent people cropping up, obviously, um, is their portrayal of and their common attitude towards the supposedly benevolent effects of English law. More about that later. Davies' sustained criticism of the role of the Anglo-Norman lords was just one aspect that was particularly serviceable for Parsons, faced as he was with a barrage of criticism from their descendants, the Old English. Needless to say, the circumstances in which Parsons found himself in in the mid-1640s were very different from Davies' situation around 1612. Davies' tone was both optimistic and triumphant. The the Irish War was won, and the island-wide introduction of English law was destined to enable Anglicisation, cementing peace and prosperity. Over the decades following, officials such as Parsons could understand their role as the fulfilment of the mission so celebrated by Davies. A large part of Examine Hibernia is given over to a recital of the improvements brought about by the New English across all aspects of Irish life, encompassing agriculture, trade, culture, the administration of justice and government. For Parsons, their efforts could be compared favourably with those of the Emperor Justinian in reforming the Roman Empire. When it came to explaining the 1641 rebellion, and answering the Catholic challenge of the 1640s, Davies' true discovery was not quite so useful. After all, four decades of what Parsons argued was good and equitable government had culminated in the greatest Irish rebellion of them all, rendering precarious the new English position. One consequence of this was the need evidently felt by Parsons to engage with aspects of the mythical and historical Irish past that Davies had not had to bother with. 
The relevance of the past to the 1640s contest over Ireland's future drove Parsons to consider the questions of first occupancy and the origins of the Irish. The version of events that he favoured was that enshrined in legislation in the 1569 Act for the Attainder of Shane O'Neill, a statute that has been expertly analysed by Kieran Brady. According to this myth, Ireland's first settlers had been admitted by uh, Gurguntius, an ancient king of the Britons, and English title to Ireland could be traced to this time. As Parsons put it, the truth is that the British have and ever had the original and best right to the land of Ireland, and government thereof. Old English claims to special status deriving from the 12th century conquest for Parsons did not stand up. They, like the new English, were simply one of many waves of English settlers, and they had not been the first. Moreover, the history of late medieval Ireland appeared to show that the descendants of the 12th century settlers were incapable of governing properly, preferring to fight continuously among themselves. By contrast, the Protestantism of the New English, allied to the good use that they had made of the country, meant that it was these latest arrivals who had the best claim to land and power in Ireland. For Parsons, the key to explaining the 1641 rebellion lay in an issue, a major issue that Davies had largely skirted around, religion. The Catholics, in their remonstrance, had advertised 1,300 years of unbroken fidelity to their faith. On the contrary, Parsons cited Archbishop Usher's proofs that Irish Christianity in its first 600 years had been identical to the religion of the Church of Ireland. Even at the end of six centuries, the religion of Ireland had still been very different from the devil's infusions later introduced by the Council of Trent. For Parsons, the statutes of the Irish Reformation Parliament showed that Ireland had not been enthralled to Rome at that time. In summarising what had gone awry since then, Parsons took up the metaphor of the Tree of Commonwealth, as used in a work of that name composed by Edmund Dudley in 1509. It was not really a valid religion then that had stirred the Irish into arms. Parsons wrote that, no, there is a diabolical Italian serpent, or a more mortiferous temper of late years gotten fast to the root of the tree of that late flourishing commonwealth. For Dudley in 1509, the main root of the tree of commonwealth had been love of God, from which everything else followed. For Parsons, in Ireland, the serpent's poison had corrupted the tree, including the top branches, the Catholic clergy, who now preached rebellion instead of Christian subjection. This blending of anti-Christian venom with the habitual anti-Englishness of the Irish had caused the 1641 rebellion. It was certainly then not the fault of William Parsons. His heavy stress on hatred of all things English as essentially a biological trait of the native Irish also set Parsons apart from Davies, as Davies had offered a much more optimistic portrayal. I'm aware that I've not said very much as yet about uh, lawyers and the law, which is what you're all here for, so I should uh, get on to that now. The law gets many mentions in Examen Hibernier. In fact, the word law occurs in one form or other 179 times. For Davies, the law had been the solution to Ireland's problems, and the same was true for Parsons. Many of the shortcomings of pre-Norman Ireland were attributable, after Geraldus Cambrensis, to the absence of settled and reasonable laws. The problems of the late medieval English colony stemmed both from the failure to communicate English law to the Gaels and from a remarkable English degeneration into Gaelic customs. According to Parsons, the new English had, however, more recently done a marvellous job of implementing English law. While Parsons cited a variety of statutes in his tract, particular attention was given to the Elizabethan Act of Uniformity passed by the Irish Parliament in 1560. This emphasis was due to the approach taken by the Confederate Catholics. 
In their remonstrance, they traced their misfortunes back to the second year of Queen Elizabeth. In their view, it had been the turning point, after which they were unjustly displaced from office in church and commonwealth by men of mean condition and quality. In his attempt to undermine this argument, Parsons focused on judicial appointments, listing the names of nine senior Old English judges appointed after 1560, including several Dillons, Aylmire, Nugent and Bath. Roland White, the master of the rolls, was also mentioned among those that Parsons insisted had been Catholic appointments under Elizabeth. He, uh, Parsons also pointed out that the first English-born judge, Robert Gardner, had arrived as late as the 29th year of Elizabeth. Indeed, Parsons argued that the old English lawyers were quite content not to be promoted to the bench, as their practice allowed them to grow rich and to purchase estates. He also pointed out that the Catholics continued to be employed in lesser offices as sheriffs and so on. Parsons um, was of the view that Irish Catholic lawyers had a particular obligation to ensure obedience to the law and loyalty to the monarch, not least because they were afforded much greater freedoms than Catholics in England. Because these lawyers were one of what Parsons called the binding boughs of the Tree of Commonwealth, the involvement of Catholic lawyers in the Confederation of Kilkenny was especially galling for Parsons. He wrote that, quote, they who are or should be the children of peace, now instead of arguments to lead men into submission and duty, to assert this rebellion to be lawful, unquote. Parsons' main charge against the Catholic lawyers is worth uh, reciting in full, and for some reason this passage makes me imagine Parsons choking on his cornflakes about 1643, reading the charges against him in the Catholic remonstrance. So what he says is, the Catholic lawyers had encouraged other Catholics to, quote, sit down under their deliriments, or deliriments, called laws, void of any kind of lawful authority, void of all legality. And the new frame of government published from their assemblies, a proper result of so presumptuous a combination to the highest derogation of His Majesty's sovereignty, sovereign authority and prerogative, which yet in words they perfidiously pretend to uphold and maintain, and to the alienation as much as they can of the people, from the good and wholesome laws of the land, and from their reverence and subjection due to their natural lord, and to the most clement English government, thereby, depri- thereby depriving the crown of the most precious treasure, the hearts and minds of the people, without whom tower walls and campaigns are but useless and dead things, which can be no other thing but a hateful preparation to found and introduce against his majesty and his laws the old Irish arbitrary rule, tyranny, usages and powers. This extract, I think, shows how Parsons characterised the law as the glue that held society together. The only conceivable alternative to English law was apparently Gaelic tyranny. Yet Parsons did not believe that all was lost for the new English. Indeed, he expressed the hope that his tract might, quote, stir up and induce his majesty and his parliament to make fit laws for such men. Unquote. Only appropriate anti-Catholic laws, then, would solve the Irish problem once and for all. The law, it seemed, was the answer to everything. Before concluding, I want to mention uh, one other interesting aspect. While Examen Hibernia was never published... There was a pamphlet published in 1651, which which, um, I want to talk about. It was titled, An Answer to Certain Jesuitical Queries. It was some 70 pages in length, and it was published by Thomas Waring in 1651. Thomas Waring had acted as clerk to the commissioners who collected the 1641 depositions before going to London uh, later in the 1640s. In 1650, he published a pamphlet that drew upon the contents of the depositions, entitled A Brief Narration of the Plotting, Beginning and Carrying On of that Execrable Rebellion. This latter pamphlet by Waring, with its portrayal of the Irish Catholics as devils, has been credited by Catherine Canino as exerting a strong influence on John Milton's Paradise Lost. 
The answer to Jesuitical queries, published in 1651, is comprised of 17 challenges to English rule in Ireland, each of which is rebutted in turn. The first of these queries, for example, asked whether the land or inheritance that a nation had for some hundreds or thousands of years enjoyed and possessed without any others laying claim to have a more special right to the same be not their special right which God and nature had given them, unquote. This set of queries is generally believed to have originated in a document that no longer survives in original form. It was reportedly circulated among Cromwell's troops around May 1649 by opponents of, in England of the Irish expedition. The text of the queries survived only in a London news book of May 1649 and in Waring's pamphlet. Several scholars, including Nora Carlin, have approached the queries as an important expression of leveller ideology and of their hostility towards the conquest of Ireland. These scholars don't accept Waring's assertion made in the, pre- in the preface to the answer to Jesuitical queries uh, from 1651 that the queries, were, that the queries were in fact the work of an Irish Jesuit determined to disrupt Cromwell's plans. Um, a leveller, putting a leveller spin on things made a lot of sense in 1649, but by 1651 the levellers were, were really lost their influence, whereas Jesuits kind of had an eternal value as, as a sort of uh, a bogeyman in, in these sort of pamphlets. Um, so Waring's detailed answers to the queries have received less attention than the actual questions or queries themselves. An examination of those answers reveals that they are based directly upon the text of Parsons' Examen Hibernia, sometimes repeating that tract for word, sometimes repeating that tract word for word, and uh, offering identical quotes from the same statutes that Parsons used. Now, Parsons would certainly have known Waring through his work with the 1641 Depositions Commission, and he appears to have acted as his patron in London in 1649. When Waring first approached the Council of State to, to seek support for publication of his pamphlet on the depositions, he produced a recommendation from William Parsons. The Council of State duly gave its stamp of approval to Parsons' examine Hibernier and Waring's brief narration on the same day, the 9th of May 1649. By the, time that by the time that Waring published his answer to certain Jesuitical queries in 1651, Parsons was dead. As the answer draws heavily on examine Hibernia, it seems worth considering the possibility that it was Parsons rather than Waring who had written it in the first place. It's worth looking again at the part of the relevant resolution of the Council of State on the 9th of May 1649. What, what that says is, Sir William Parsons has prepared some discourses asserting the English interest in Ireland, particularly one tract examined, uh, one tract and called examine Hibernia. But the part I want to emphasize is the next, emphasize is the next line that says, and another discourse containing questions, obje- questions and objections concerning the war in Ireland. Now this mention of a second discourse by Parsons containing questions and objections could well refer to a version of what appeared two years later under Waring's name as the answer to certain Jesuitical queries. One final possibility worth mentioning is that the original queries themselves were the work neither of levellers or of Jesuits, but of Sir William Parsons. But that's perhaps an issue for another day. To conclude then, very quickly, this paper has sought to provide some insight into the context, content and fate of Examen Hibernia, a tract penned by, I believe, Sir William Parsons in the mid-1640s. Given the scope of the work in question, my analysis has been necessarily selective, and in most respects I have only scratched the surface. Issues relating to lawyers and the law comprise just one aspect of examine Hibernia, but it is a significant one nonetheless. While Parsons roundly denounced the Catholic clergy, he seems to have had a greater fear of the Catholic lawyers. After all, it was they who were at the forefront of efforts to renegotiate with the Crown the place of Catholics in the Kingdom of Ireland.
The main lessons of examine Hibernia were historical. In particular, the historical English tendency to compromise with the Irish had led only to degeneration and to one rebellion after another. After 1641, Parsons argued there should be no further compromise. Thank you.